The common theme in our readings today is rejection. In the Old Testament reading, we see the calling of Ezekiel to be a prophet. He's told he's going to go to a rebellious people. Some will hear your words, but most, Ezekiel is told, will not. But don't be afraid of them are their words. The psalm appointed for today, as David pointed out, is about people who are feeling contempt and rejection. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Paul writes in the epistle reading today from 2 Corinthians. Paul, that annoying guy, doesn't he get on your nerves sometimes? What a guy that he is. I mean, did you, did you catch what he did there? He says, I'm really humble, and I don't want to boast. But let me tell you, if I wanted to boast, <laughs> I'd have a lot of stuff to talk about. And he talks about some of those things when he wraps up again with the theme of rejection. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And in our gospel reading, of course, you saw it. Jesus himself is rejected. Rejected by most, I guess. I suppose a few do receive him. You notice that we are told he was able to heal a few sick people. Here's another one of my favorite passages of Scripture, verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. In that verse, I think we've got a remarkable insight in what it must have been to tag along with Jesus. What if uh, tomorrow at work or among friends or something, somebody said, well, well how was church yesterday? And you said, Snoresville City. I mean, you expect something to happen every once in a while. We got dressed, went down to church. Only thing that happens, a few sick people got healed. Can you imagine how, how, how a low turnout of sick, healed sick people is seen as a big disappointment? But he's largely rejected. And in the next passage, listen to the gospel reading, next passage, Jesus is going to call his disciples, he's going to send them out, and he's going to tell them what to do when they're rejected. But in fact, Jesus is not just rejected. Although that's the title that the translators put in front of that passage in your pew Bibles, the people in his hometown aren't, don't just reject Jesus. He offends the people in his hometown. Literally from the Greek word here, they're scandalized. This is more than just being rejected. That Greek word that's used here is sometimes translated a stumbling block, an occasion to trip and to fall, to give offense. There's a wonderful story, you remember, it is from the second chapter of Luke, when baby Jesus is born and Joseph and Mary take him to the temple to dedicate him. And there's that old saint Simeon at the temple. And he takes baby Jesus in his arms and he prophesies over this little baby. The first part of that prayer has entered our Anglican evening prayer service. It's called the Nunc Dimittis from St. Luke chapter 2. The first part reads like this, Lord, now let's thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of thy people Israel. And that's where the nice part of the prayer prophecy ends. But then Simeon goes on and says, For behold, this child is appointed for the fall of many in Israel, and for a sign that will be opposed. 
From the beginning of the story, we're told that this little child, as he grows up, is going to be a scandal, a stumbling block, and an offense. To be offended, to be scandalized, is not to disagree or to reject. It's to be outraged or to be disgusted. It's not to say, no, I don't buy it. It's to be upset by the suggestion that's been made, by the claim that's been put forward. And we see this in verse 3. And they took offense at him. There's an awful lot here to think about. I started off with three points to this sermon, and it just kept getting longer and longer, so I cut it down to two points, and I cut it down to one point, but I was able to fit three points into it. But there's so much more to talk about here. But my main point today, what I feel led to talk about today, is to convince you that we need an offensive Jesus. It's easy, but easy for me to get up on my high horse and, and sit, get in the pulpit and say, you know, Jesus would offend all those people out in the world, wouldn't he? And for you to say, amen. But we need an offensive Jesus. Because when you think about it, even the church has been scandalized and offended by Jesus. The people in his town say about Jesus, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? Now, no more about this later, but here is Mary. She's a simple peasant mother with a large family. She's the widow of a construction worker. But the church found that far too ordinary. And more about that later too. But the church is scandalized that Jesus would be the son of just a simple peasant woman. And so in the Middle Ages, there developed ideas that Mary must have been so very much more than that. And my Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle Ages so, so wanted to make Mary so super ordinary that they bestowed her with birth without sin, endowed her with perpetual virginity, claimed that she rose bodily into heaven, and even, and there have been echoes of this more recently, that she was a co-redeemer with Jesus, that Mary and Jesus together atoned for the sins of the world. And I greatly appreciate and understand the affection for Mary, this pious, obedient, faithful servant. What a wonderful example she is to all of us. But the church was not content to let her be wonderful in her ordinariness and had to stick things on to make her extraordinary, the ordinariness of Jesus. That was one of my points that I got rid of. Crucifixion was also a pretty ordinary thing in the Roman world. Paul writes in the first letter of the Corinthians that the whole idea of crucifixion is a scandal. That's the word that he uses, the scandal. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Crucifixion was a scandal to both the Jews and the Gentiles. One of the very first Christian heresies to pop up in the church was the heresy of docetism. That's the notion that Jesus only appeared to be human, but really wasn't. That Jesus was some kind of, today we might say, like a hologram. That Jesus wasn't real. I mean, he, Jesus is real, okay, but he wasn't really a physical person here. 
And the notion behind that was to avoid saying that Jesus had suffered on the cross, that Jesus had died. Because who would want to see Jesus suffer? And so they do all kinds of intellectual backflips and somersaults to figure out a way to be able to say that Jesus didn't suffer on the cross. That the hologram of Jesus was up there, but that Jesus himself didn't suffer or die. Because who among us would want to would, would want that? That's in fact why when we recite the Nicene Creed, we specifically say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And why are we so specific about Pontius Pilate there? Because when that creed was written, there were preachers standing in pulpits in churches claiming that Jesus didn't suffer under Pontius Pilate and didn't die. And as odd as I hope that sounds to you, because hopefully we've driven docetism out of the church, there, there were people who believed that. And on a level, I understand why. Of course, you don't want to think about Jesus suffering and dying. But even among those who did believe that Jesus suffered on the cross, the crucifixion was still seen as a scandal, as a painful thing, as an offense. If you study early Christian art, we don't see depictions of the crucifixion until after a couple of generations of the end of the Roman Empire. That's because for Christians in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was all too real. You want to see a crucifixion? You want to know what a crucifixion is like? Walk down to the corner. Just imagine, last night the cops caught somebody breaking into cars at Littlewood. They grabbed him, stripped him naked, took their swords, chopped some branches off the tree, nailed him up to the tree, left a Roman army soldier there to guard him so his family can't come and get him, just left him there to die. And when the kids show up for school at Littlewood on Monday morning, they're going to learn lesson number one of the day. Don't steal. This is what happens to people who steal. The Roman Christians didn't need to put up paintings of Jesus on the cross. If you want to see somebody on a cross, walk down the street. The memories are just too raw and too real. And other aspects of Jesus' claims offend those who bear his name today. There's a National Church Organization meeting in Austin, Texas this week, and one item on their agenda is revising their prayer book. And one serious proposal, which I expect to be eventually received, is to go through their prayer book and remove all the places where Jesus is called Lord. Because that's just too authoritarian. That implies a distinction of authority between us and Jesus. And surely, if Jesus lived in our more enlightened times, he wouldn't want people calling him Lord. My point here is that all too often, the church, church finds yourself embarrassed and offended and scandalized by Jesus. And some people today say, well, you see, we just can't accept these offensive things today. We need to reconstruct Jesus so he's not so offensive. We need to remove the offensive stuff, and, and then maybe, you see, more people will respond to Jesus. If we just got rid of all the stuff that Jesus does that, that offends people, then, then maybe we'd have more people responding to Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus really is about love and peace and that kind of thing. And if we just get rid of all this stuff about sin and all this stuff about worshiping Jesus and all of this stuff, then, um, well, the people will flood into the churches. But the problem with this idea is this, that when you rebuild an inoffensive Jesus, you've actually got more problems than before you started. 
And here's what I mean with quickly three reasons why an inoffensive Jesus does not work. First of all, an inoffensive Jesus has no historical credibility. In other words, an inoffensive Jesus doesn't explain what we know about Jesus. What do we know about Jesus for sure? I mean, let's lay aside all questions of biblical authority and so on, just for a moment. But what do we know for sure? We know he was crucified, he was murdered, and that shortly after his death, he was worshipped by Jews as God in the flesh, by a group of Jews as God in the flesh. Jewish people, the last people you'd ever expect to imagine that God could become a fully human being or that a human being could be divine. Now think about this. These are two things we know for sure, okay? He's crucified by a mob, and a group of Jewish people worship him as God. Those are pretty extreme responses. Over here, there's a mob calling for him to be crucified, and over here, there's a group worshiping him as God incarnate. Now see, if you create an inoffensive Jesus, none of this makes sense. Neither of those things make sense. Now those are two things we know for sure about Jesus, and neither of them make sense. All these efforts to perform some kind of surgery on Jesus and remove all the, inoffens all the offensive parts that we find uncomfortable in our modern Western world, they can't explain what we know happened. If we create an image of Jesus as a good man, a kind-hearted man, a loving man, a neighborly man, a nice man, benign, a man who never raises his voice, someone who always tells you that you are wonderful just the way you are, someone who always welcomes you in and never excludes anyone, well, we've created Mr. Rogers. <laughs> All of us grew up with Mr. Rogers, right? I, I can just picture little Jim Sunwall coming home from school and stopping by the telegraph office to see if Mr. Rogers had sent out the telegram to the children of the world. <laughs> now picture this now, okay? This is what we have to believe about an inoffensive Jesus. Picture this. Imagine this. Some religious leaders are sitting around. They turn on the TV. They see an episode of Mr. Rogers. They get angry. They say, we better keep an eye on this guy. They tune in again, watch a second episode. They get furious. They watch a third episode, and they say, that's it. We've got to kill him. So they work out a plot with the political leaders. And the political leaders send out the police to arrest Mr. Rogers. But when the people in town learn that the police have arrested Mr. Rogers, they gather in a huge mob at the jail. And they start chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And the state governor comes in to find out what all the turmoil is about. And the governor goes in and he sits down with Mr. Rogers and talks to Mr. Rogers and he comes out of the steps of the courthouse and says, I've talked to Mr. Rogers. He hasn't done anything wrong. But the crowd cries out even louder, crucify him, crucify him. And the governor brings out two prisoners and he says, who do you want me to release to you? Charles Manson or Mr. Rogers? And the mob cries out even louder, give us Charles Manson. And the governor says, then what shall I do with Mr. Rogers? And the enraged mob cries out, crucify him, crucify him. I mean, really. I'm supposed to believe that. 
Who's going to crucify Mr. Rogers? Who's going to crucify an inoffensive Jesus? No one. Now, I'll tell you something else. Lots of people, like me, like Mr. Rogers, love Mr. Rogers, admire Mr. Rogers, but no one's going to kneel at Mr. Rogers' feet and say, you are my Lord and my God. And if anyone ever did, Mr. Rogers, as you know, a fine Christian man, would have told him to stand up and that he was certainly not anyone's Lord or God. John Stott pointed out more than 50 years ago that if you read the Gospels, you find no one ever had a moderate response to Jesus. Either they rejected him or they followed him, but no one ever liked Jesus. No one ever met Jesus and said, wow, what a great example of a man of moral principles. No one ever said, wow, Jesus is a nice guy. I wish I could be his neighbor. Look at what Jesus pulled off. He got himself killed and worshipped at the same time. You don't do that by being Mr. Rogers. So inoffensive Jesus just isn't historically credible. In other words, it doesn't explain what we know happened. A second reason why we need an offensive Jesus is that an inoffensive Jesus can't be a universal savior. That means he can't appeal to everyone. Here we see Jesus in his hometown. It's just a small town in Galilee. And the people in his hometown say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus is the carpenter. He's the construction worker. He's the guy you call when you need your door repaired or your fence patched up. He's the guy who frames the inside walls of your house. He's just an ordinary guy. He's in his hometown. They know him and his family by name. And they took offense at him. They guess what? Pretty soon Jesus is going to go to the big city. He's going to talk to the elites in the big city who've never even heard of him before. He's going to offend them too. He offends everyone. And he offends everyone in different ways. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Now, we're going to go into broad brush time, okay? Broad brush time. Just play along with me, okay? I'm using a very broad brush, all right? Just play along. It, it seems to me that if you go up to a good, nice, non-Christian person in Gainesville, and you ask about Jesus, you, you would probably get something like this. They would say, well, you know, one thing I really don't like about Jesus is this stuff about I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because, I mean, that's just really pretty exclusive. And that really doesn't include everybody. So that kind of bothers me about Jesus. But now what I really like about Jesus is that he's willing to go and hang out with poor people, and he has lunch with prostitutes and talks to them about God. And, and I, I, I don't have I don't too much time talking about God myself, but I mean, he's willing to, to talk to people who are outcasts and, and sick people and lepers. He goes and hangs out with them, and I, I, I think that's pretty cool. I like that about Jesus. I mean, it's broad brush time, okay, but play along. I, th I think you, you know what I'm getting at there, okay? But if you go up to a nice, good, non-Christian person in East Africa or Southeast Asia and you ask about Jesus, they don't mind that Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. They're used to exclusive claims. And they may not agree, but they're used to people showing up and saying, this is the way things are. 
They haven't been touched by the relativism that's corroded us, you see. So that doesn't bother them. They're used to these kind of claims. Okay. But a big stumbling block, a big offense, is that Jesus hangs out with poor people? Lepers? Outcasts? Prostitutes? These are people who believe in, in fate and in strong personal boundaries and social proprieties. Now, I said broad brush time, right? Broad brush time. But do you see my point? Jesus offends people in different cultures in different ways, and that's how Jesus can be a savior for different cultures. There are those who want to reshape Jesus to meet the perceived needs of the 21st century West. But if they do that, they're creating a Jesus who can't speak to people of other cultures. Oh, I hear, but we live in an enlightened time. Guess what? Everybody th thought they lived in an enlightened time. You should realize and take seriously that in a hundred years, people will read the columns and articles and essays that come from the cultural elites of our time, and as they read them, they're going to be bored most of the time, and then they're either going to laugh uproariously or, or recoil in horror. You know how I know that's going to happen? Because it always has happened. We've never arrived. And when we say we've arrived, let's help Jesus catch up to us. What can he do? And finally, an inoffensive Jesus cannot be a personal savior. My wife was at the 8 o'clock service, so I said she can tell you this is the truth. You can only have a real relationship with someone who annoys you. That's the way it works. You can only have a real relationship with somebody who every once in a while rubs you the wrong way, that you come into conflict with, who's willing to point out to you when you're wrong. Or else you just end up with robot Jesus or something. To be in a real relationship, you need to be willing to be offended. If you want to be in a real relationship with Jesus, you have to ask Jesus to point out your hypocrisies and your weaknesses. You have to ask Jesus to show, show you where am I going wrong. Because Jesus wants to do that. He's an offensive Jesus. And if you aren't being offended... Maybe you aren't paying attention. In Jesus' name, amen.